The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is Genesis chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before the Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning here are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh has commanded And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. 
and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to the Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Aaron and have the joy of getting to be a part of the team uh, here at Coram Dale. I wanted to start this morning just sharing a, a little story about our family and the fall of November of 2021, uh, my, my family and I, we came home uh, late one night uh, to an unmarked package on our front doorstep. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes our packages that are on our front doorstep either have a red circle on them or like a little smiley face on them because they're from Amazon. And then usually my wife and I look at each other and go, like, what did you order this time? You know. But when we kind of approached our front doorstep and then grabbed the package and walked inside, we opened it up. And inside this package was a tour guidebook to Maui, Hawaii, and then airplane tickets for every single member of our family and hotel reservations for us to stay at the Hyatt in Maui for five days. Someone from our church, and to this day we still don't know who this person was, anonymously paid for our entire family to spend five days in Maui. So, I mean, if you're looking for a good gift for... (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Kidding. Where I'm going with this is here. We were stoked for that future trip to Hawaii. I mean, we were excited. 
we had the tickets, we had the guidebook, and we spent you know, every single moment we possibly could just dreaming and thinking about our future in Hawaii, what restaurants we were gonna eat at, what beaches we were gonna hang out at, all the different activities that we were going to do. And in kind of a silly yet honest way, those pieces of paper, those airplane tickets, that guidebook, were simply just a mere foretaste of that future glory to be revealed to our family by those warm Hawaiian beaches. And again, we were so excited about this, but at the same time, living like a Christian is like this. Christianity is a future-oriented faith. We are living by faith in a kingdom that, yes, is already, it's here, and we're living by faith in a kingdom that is not yet, a glory yet to be revealed, a new heavens and new earth. We're longing and waiting for that day when Christ returns and makes all things new. And that's why, as followers of Jesus, we need some guidebook pictures. We need some airplane tickets. We need some things to help us envision and live for that day when Christ returns and makes all things new. We, we need some things to help us to live with both faithfulness and anticipation for that day. And that's exactly what this text gives us here in Genesis 47. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you again to turn with us to Genesis 47. And what happens in Genesis 47 is that Jacob's family finally gets down to Egypt. They finally arrive. They finally make it to the end, that destination. Yet, at the same time, they actually haven't fully arrived. They're still going to be, even though they're settling in the land of Egypt, they're still longing for a new and better land that God has promised them. That the gift that God is giving Jacob and his family here in Genesis 47 is but a mere foretaste for the better future that awaits God's people. And that this story today gives us glimpses of the future to help us as God's people set our hope on the future. So as we dive in, we're going to look at this theme of this future foretaste that God is giving his people in the land of Egypt. And we're going to see this theme play out in three ways, this theme of future foretaste. Future foretaste as it relates to place, as it relates to plan, specifically God's plan, and then third, future foretaste as it relates to promise. So let's dive in. Number one, future foretaste in the place that God has. Now, Joseph and his family have just made this long trek from Canaan. We talked about that last week. And as we come to the beginning of chapter 47, let's take a look at verse 5 where the text says this. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now notice in the text that the scriptures describe Goshen as, quote, the best land. And this is the first instance of God giving his people here, Jacob's family, this future foretaste of what God is going to eventually do for all of God's people. What do I mean? Well, think about it like this. The language of, quote, the land is stock language all throughout the Old Testament, and especially the book of Genesis, for the promised land that God promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that he would give to his people. And of course, the land that they're settling here in, the land of Goshen, is for sure not the promised land. 
But again, the text uses that same language of here now is Jacob, his family Israel, settling in the land. It's but a mere foretaste of what God is going to eventually do with all of Jacob's family years down the road. And while Egypt and Goshen, again, is not the promised land, God's people are experiencing this small sort of micro-fulfillment of what God will do. Take a look again at verse, or look down with me at verse 11 and see this kind of play out more. It says this, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. It's that same phrase again. It's the, it's the good land. It's the best land. In the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And I want you to also notice that it's Joseph that is settling his father and his brothers. It's Joseph that the text is telling us that gave Jacob and his family the land. Joseph is the, is the one whom God is using to provide this best land, this good land. But I also want you to notice that phrase, quote, possession of the land. Because that phrase, again, possession of land, is used later on in the Old Testament to describe kind of how God's people begin to take possession of the promised land of Canaan. So here, the, the, the narrator, the writer, is using the same language that will later be applied to God's people as they come into the promised land. And so what we're meant to see is here in Genesis 47, God's people are being given this gift of the best land and using this language of taking possession of the land, we're meant to see here is God again giving this micro, small, mere fulfillment of what later is to come. This isn't the full meal deal. Israel will one day take possession of the land that was promised to Abraham. But here in Genesis 47, God's people are kind of getting this little appetizer, if you will, a little foretaste of what God will do in the future. But then, let's take a look at what happens next. This leads us to number two, future foretaste as it relates to plan. Now, the scene's going to shift a little bit here. As you heard this section read kind of in the middle of, of 47, you might have been wondering, what's happening here? Like, why is Joseph sort of behaving and acting the way that he does? Like, I know Joseph's had a rough, you know, past few years in Egypt. But why is all of a sudden Joseph, in some ways, maybe he's acting kind of like a jerk here. Like, he's enslaving the, the people here in Egypt, and he's kind of doing some stuff that you're like, hmm, what's up with that? Well, let's read carefully here, and you'll perhaps be surprised at what we find. Let's start in verse 15. We read this. And when all the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your, before your eyes? For our money is gone. Now, kind of real simple observation. Just notice what's happening here. They're in the middle of the famine. They've run out of money. And the Egyptians come before Joseph. Remember, Joseph has been kind of installed in this high position of authority. And they come to Joseph just with this very simple request, give us food. But as we kind of come th read through the narrative, notice what Joseph doesn't do. Joseph, Joseph just doesn't just give handouts. He doesn't just give the food for free. He says in verse 17 that there's going to be this exchange. 
that he invites the people to not just hear some free food, but bring some livestock, and in exchange for livestock, here is some food. And that's why, look at verse 19. Look at what happens next. The livestock's going to run out. A year later, the famine's still happening. So now what? So not only is the money all gone for the people, so also a year later, the livestock is also gone. They come back to Joseph a second time, and we read this in verse 19. Again, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed that we might live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. I want you to pay attention to what the text said in verse 19, because we read the people say to Joseph, buy us. What's happening there? Let me tell you what's not happening. This is not Joseph being this oppressive master and sort of lording his authority over the people. This is rather the people of Egypt recognizing the kind of person Joseph is, the character that he is, the leader that he is, coming before Joseph in a moment of need and in desperation and saying, buy us, we want to work for you. We want to come under your leadership and your authority. Joseph's plan, I would argue, is not to make the Egyptians slaves in Egypt. Rather, these people are joyfully wanting to come under the leadership and under the, 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 the authority of Joseph to work and to find a way to provide for themselves in a moment of need. Now, a very reasonable question might be, why doesn't Joseph just give the food? Why doesn't Joseph just give the people what they want? I mean, isn't that the, quote, nice thing to do? Isn't that the kind of gracious thing to do? But I think Joseph understands something that I think we need to be reminded of. That work provides a sense of dignity for people. There's something embedded within each of us, going all the way back to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, that remember, when God makes the first humans, he gives them one of the, a few different commands, but one of them is to work the ground or work the garden and to keep it. In other words, work predates sin. Work is part of God's intent for humanity. So by inviting, if you're Joseph, by inviting the people, inviting the Egyptians to participate in their own provision through work, Joseph is actually giving this, these people a sense of dignity, a sense of worth, understanding that for them to be able to provide for themselves is actually going to give them the most meaning, the most purpose, the most joy. Empowering people to work and contribute is actually going to honor how we were made, according to Genesis 1 and 2, and glorifies God as his image bearers. And this is why I think Joseph understands something that you and I, you, us, should pay attention to. But I also want to point out, take a look at verse 21. It gets even more interesting. As for the people, verse 21 he made servants of them. We'll talk about that. From one end of Egypt to the other. Now, again, I don't think Joseph is necessarily making or enslaving the people of Egypt here. Remember, I already mentioned in verse 19 that we're told that the people wanted to voluntarily come under Joseph's authority. They said, remember, buy us. We want to work for you. We want to come under your leadership. That's not slavery. 
And that's especially, just kind of side note here, this is not the slavery we're going to read about in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 that Pharaoh does to the Hebrews. All of that language in Exodus 1 and 2 of oppression and evil and malpractice, all that sort of verbiage is not found here in Genesis 47. So at the very least, we're not seeing, we're not meant to see Joseph at all in the likes of Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2. Something different is happening here. But I want you to look at verse 21 again in detail with me. And I want you to look at, if you have your Bible in front of you, the footnote in verse 21. And yes, I just said the word footnote in a sermon. So this is going to get fun, all right? Take a look at the footnote in verse 21. If you look at your footnote in the ESV, in verse 21, you're going to read something like this. Samaritan, Septuagint, Vulgate. Those three, the Samaritan, the Septuagint, and the Vulgate, are all manuscripts for the Old Testament. And in verse 21, those three manuscripts have what you probably have in your English Bible. He made servants of them. But your footnote is also going to tell you that in the Hebrew text, which is the primary source text for the Old Testament, the Hebrew text says this, he removed them to their cities. Now, the word servant on one hand and the word remove on the other are almost identical. They're just one small little kind of dash or letter off, and that's what makes the difference. And what possibly happened is that as the the scribes were kind of hand-copying these manuscripts, one scribe potentially had trouble reading the other scribe's handwriting, so the last little kind of dash, if you will, of a letter got changed. And that one little dash, one little difference on the letter makes all the difference between reading on one hand, he made them servants on one hand, or with what the Hebrew text actually says, he removed them to their cities. If you remember from earlier, though, in the story, it's where the cities are is where actually all the food and the provisions are being kept. So if the text reads, he removed them to their cities, as it does in the Hebrew, what we're meant to see, actually, is Joseph is actually a life-giving figure in this moment. Joseph is providing life and sustenance and provision for the people. But there's actually even a deeper and, I would say, greater payoff here. Because that word for remove them is the same word that gets translated all over the Torah and the Old Testament as Passover. So what you could read, and what's in there in the text, is that Joseph passed them over or delivered them to the cities. So not only is Joseph delivering them towards more provision, but here Joseph, the leader, is delivering or passing over the people here in Egypt. I mean, what's happening here? Again, we are seeing just a glimpse, a mere, a mere future foretaste of the work that God will someday do in the future. And what story does Passover evoke in all our minds and imaginations? Exodus, right? Where God, by his grace, delivers or passes over the people who, by faith, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And here, in Genesis 47... We're reading a story about how God's man, Joseph, delivers or passes over God's people, and not even just God's people, it's the Egyptians, the foreign people, and delivers them with provision and salvation and life. Again, Genesis 47 is a beautiful text showing and giving God's people these kind of little hints, 
these little micro-fulfillments of the future work that God will one day do with his people. See, what seems on the surface like a very unusual plan, right? Here's Joseph potentially enslaving people, potentially kind of, I don't know, some people might think he's getting back at the Egyptians or whatnot, is actually, when you read the text carefully, Joseph is not doing that, enslaving people. He's a mere foreshadow of the future work of Passover and redemption and deliverance that God is going to do with all of his people. That's why in verse 25, take a look at this. This is important. The people say, you have saved our lives. Notice the response of the people is not, you have oppressed us, you have hurt us, you have damaged us. No, the response of the people after they see the work of Joseph delivering or passing them over to the cities is to say in response to verse 25, you have saved us. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. That the plan Joseph enacts here, this plan here in Genesis 47 is, mere, is a mere future foretaste of the plan of salvation that God will one day do as he delivers and passes over his people in the Exodus. Which leads us then to our third and final point. If we've looked at future foretaste as it relates to place and as it relates to plan, let's look at how future foretaste relates to promise. Look at verse 27. Thus Israel, which is again the other name for Jacob in this instance, thus Israel or Jacob settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, where is that language from? Fruitful and multiply. Let's talk about that for a moment. Where have we seen or first seen that language before? Well, page one of your Bible, right? Genesis chapter one. Remember the blessing that God gives the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it? Now, what's interesting is Genesis 1's the first time that that phrase is used, be fruitful and multiply. And that phrase is used like rinse and repeat all over the book of Genesis. Fruitful and multiply, fruitful and multiply. But up until this point in Genesis 47, every single time that that phrase, fruitful and multiply, is used, is used in either two contexts. Either God commanding his people to be fruitful and multiply, or, and kind of very similarly, God promising that his people would be fruitful and multiply. Here, in Genesis 47, is the first time that we're actually seeing the fruitful multiply fulfillment come to fruition. Here is the first time we're actually seeing, at least explicitly in the text, here is God's people being fruitful and multiplying. And where is this taking place? Not in the Garden of Eden. Not in the Promised Land. But in the foreign land of Egypt. Think about the theological significance of what we're reading here in Genesis 47, if you're, if you're an ancient Israelite. You're reading, you're understanding, you're seeing God fulfilling his Eden-like promises and blessing even in a foreign place. Here we see the power of God to bring to fulfillment, to, to be faithful to his promises, not, and they're not just confined to one particular place, and not just confined to one particular location. But God's power to fulfill his promises has no bounds. That God's people can experience, even like blessing, even in a cultural moment, 
that might be even antagonistic or against the purposes and will of God. Think about that for a moment. Here is God's people experiencing the fruitful and multiply blessing of the Garden of Eden, even in a foreign land. But this does not mean Israel is at home in the land of Egypt. This does not mean Egypt is the Garden of Eden. This does not mean Egypt is the promised land. Israel is still meant to look forward to the future work that God will do. Take a look at verse 29, because Jacob himself explicitly states this. He knows this. Verse 29, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered and said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. See, this is the promise that Joseph is making. A promise to take Jacob to his real home. Promise to deal kindly with me. It's this promise of, of steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jacob knows, friends, that even though there's Eden-like blessing taking place in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, Jacob knows that Egypt is not my home. Egypt is not where I'm going to find fulfillment. Despite all of the blessing and the life and the goodness that God is so graciously giving not only Israel, the people, and also the Egyptians, despite all of the good things that God is doing here in Genesis 47, Jacob gets the main point that Egypt is not where I belong. Egypt is not my home. And that's why he's asking and imploring Joseph, don't bury me here. That God has something future for you and for our family. That there is a land that he is going to give us. And that's where I belong. That despite the blessing in life that God's people are experiencing, Jacob knows the land of Egypt is not my home. Someone who I think really understands this well in kind of our modern cultural moment is pastor and author Tim Keller. Many of you probably are familiar with him and kind of know some of his story in the recent years. He's been recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And about a year and a half or so ago, he wrote this article in The Atlantic, kind of him and uh, Kathy kind of describing, Kathy, his wife, kind of describing their experience through the difficulty of understanding that Tim has been diagnosed with cancer. And this is what a short section of what he wrote in this article. Tim Keller writes this, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and the flowers and the vase to our own embraces, sex and conversation, bring more joy than ever. 
This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully, and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become a source of daily happiness. But it is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishing good divine gift that it is. Do you see what Keller's getting at there? That there is a way to rightly enjoy the good things God gives us here in this world. There is a right way to enjoy and be glad and to celebrate all of the amazing, wonderful, even Eden-like blessings that God wants to give us and allows us to enjoy in this world. But when we make those things ultimate, when we make those things the things we are living for and the things that we put our hope in, we actually don't enjoy them as we should. Our orders are off. Our longings are off. But it is only when we have our hope in something future, the hope that God has given us in heaven with him, that we are actually able to rightly enjoy the things here in the present. See, for Jacob and for all his flaws, can see past the surface of things, things that in many ways are very good for him. He's in the best land. He's being provided for. His people are experiencing Eden-like blessing, yet still Jacob says, Egypt is not my home. Jacob is wanting Joseph and he's wanting us, by extension, to understand that, friends, Egypt cannot satisfy. And that this is the posture that we are invited to have as Christians, that Egypt cannot satisfy. That we are often tempted to put all our eggs into the basket of the here and now, to load all of our hopes and dreams and all of our ambitions into what we can see and touch and taste. And all of those things may be good in and of themselves. And that God may and often does give us a future foretaste of the good things that he will continue to do. But that does not mean Egypt can satisfy. Because friends, again, Egypt cannot satisfy. Back in California, in our church there, one of the people that I loved getting to talk with and getting to pray with was an older lady in our church named Anne. And Anne was this sweet old lady. She would often show up to church on Sunday mornings well before I even would get there. And I was usually one of the first people there. And she would be there praying in the sanctuary and praying over the whole Sunday gathering and would spend hours upon hours throughout the week praying in our little church out there. And one of the things that I kept noticing as I kept having conversations with Anne, she'd often come up to my office and want to pray there, was that she had this genuine and sincere hope and this sincere realization that Egypt cannot satisfy. That she demonstrated this, this longing and this desire to want to be with Jesus and to be with him in his presence. She had this longing and this, this sense of, of, of praying for, God, we want more of your kingdom, more of your purposes and will to happen here, recognizing that this world cannot satisfy. And it was very challenging for me because so often for myself, I'm just... I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm just trying to make it through the past, the next few hours, let alone thinking about some future hope that I have. But Anne was just this beautiful reminder 
almost every single day that we're living for something more than the here and now. That we have a deeper and better hope than just the here and now. And I don't know about you, how often do you intentionally think about and worship God for the future hope that you have? How often are you longing for that hope that we have in Christ, that he will return and make all things new, that Egypt, this world, cannot satisfy? Because, friends, it is so easy to allow just the here and now to consume all of our thoughts and our worries and our everything about our, our daily lives. But this, what the scriptures and what Genesis 47 is inviting you and me to consider is that the good things God gives us, the blessings that God gives us, the Eden-like promises that he fulfills in this life are meant to point us to something greater, are meant to point us to the future hope that we have when he will return and make all things new and that we will enjoy him and be with him and worship him fully and be fully transformed into more and more of his image. C.S. Lewis, I think, gets it right when he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you will get neither. And we've been saying in this series through Joseph that the story of Joseph just points to and foreshadows the work that Jesus Christ will do. That the actions of Joseph are just but a mere foretaste, a mere appetizer for the work that Christ comes to do for you and for me. I mean, friends, think about it. Moments before Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he told his followers, and by extension us, that I go to prepare a place for you. And that, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus right here in this room, that in many ways we get to experience that reality right now. That as we abide with him and remain with him, that we have a place and a home in his kingdom that we can experience and enjoy his presence right now. And at the same time, we long for the day. We long for that moment where we get to be in his place, his home fully, experiencing and enjoying his presence. And likewise, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is the plan. It's the plan to save sinners like you and me, a plan that begins now if you're a follower of Jesus, and extends forward all into eternity. And that there will be a day where this plan is fully consummated and we get to see Jesus face to face. And the promise, the promise that was made to Abraham, which in many ways is being fulfilled in small micro ways here in Genesis 47, gets more and more fulfilled in the book of Exodus, in the Passover, and the, the deliverance. It's fulfilled as Israel takes into, goes into the promised land in Joshua. And it's fulfilled even more and more, pointing forward through the prophets to Jesus himself. That Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished, yes, forgiveness of sins for you and for me, also opens up a new and beautiful future for those who put their faith in him. And that because of what Christ has done for you and for me, that Jesus has guaranteed a better future for us. He's guaranteed something better. How, you might ask? Well, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he's given us his Holy Spirit, which the Bible says is like a guarantee or a down payment 
That when we recognize and see that who Christ is and what he's done for us, that we can begin to live rightly here in this world. We get to enjoy God's gifts here in the present and look forward to anticipation for what he's going to do in the future. See, friends, when I'm really living for the place Christ is preparing for me, it changes me. It allows me to have a security and an enjoyment, rightly, of the things of now, but also build my affections and anticipation for something greater. And when I understand the plan of salvation that God has instrumented from eternity past and is continuing on into the present right now, that also begins to change. That grounds me in this hope that my future is secure. And that when I understand the promises of God and the guarantee that Christ has delivered on those promises through his life and death and resurrection, that again frees me, it changes me, it opens me up to not put all my eggs, if you will, in this basket of the here and now, but to set my hope, as Peter would call us to, to set our hope fully at the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the text is inviting you and me to see that Egypt cannot satisfy. Where this morning are you being tempted to allow the things of this world to hold ultimate hope and meaning for you? Is it in a a job or a potential promotion? Is it in a particular relationship or perhaps something at school or with a friend? Where are you tempted to take some of God's good blessing and gifts and make that ultimate in your life? Where is the Spirit inviting you to come before Jesus and to come humbly before him, recognizing that there are various ways that I think all of us in this room want to make this world or some aspect of this world ultimate? But as you allow the Spirit to work in us and to convict us and to bring us before God, may we see the kindness of God here. May we see the goodness and the mercy of God. And as we see that, understand that more deeply and believe that more deeply, may that set you and me free to rightly enjoy the things of this world, to live faithfully here in the present, to, 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 to want to see change and, and good things happen in this world, but to also recognize that this world as it is right now is not ultimate, that we are longing and living for a day when Christ returns and makes all things new and he will end suffering, pain, to death and tears. And that we will stand before him fully made new in his presence. So Father, we long for that day. We long for that work in our lives. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace to live well in this world. Give us the grace and the wisdom to believe your gospel more deeply and in turn to be the kinds of people that recognize and believe and live differently that Egypt cannot satisfy. God, I pray that you would reveal to us areas in our own lives and our own stories where we are tempted to want to make something or anything of this world ultimate. 
God, I pray that you'd help us to rightly enjoy you and the things that you've given us. Help us to live faithfully now in the present, but to live with anticipation and hope for the work that you've promised to do. So Jesus, we love you only because you first loved us. And we ask again for your grace, your mercy, and forgiveness this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.